We're in a series called Life with God. And if you're coming in and you're just sort of, you know, it's like first time here, we're in the middle of a series. It's sort of like coming into the middle of a movie. We'll catch you up a little bit. You can always go back online. We have all the messages online if you just go to the Mariner's website if you want to sort of catch up on it. Um, but let me just give you an overview and then we'll all get rolling together, okay? So life with God is basically asking the question, what is the life God has come to give us? Uh, Jesus talked about this full life or this abundant life, this life that was beyond what we could do on our own. And he said, I came to bring that life to you. That's my purpose. My purpose is to give you this life. And one of the, one of the things we've realized is that that life, uh, you get that life in direct correlation to how much Jesus is in your life, which is kind of an interesting thing. But he says, my presence brings this. And what we recognize is that for most of us, while we might be able to connect great with Jesus while we're at church, or we connect really well with him, maybe if we're in a life group or a small group, maybe we connect during devotion times. But for a lot of us, most of our life, we're not really connecting with Jesus. We're not even thinking about him. We're sort of just operating in the way that we operate. And so this series really has asked the question, how do you connect with Jesus in your day-to-day -day life? Just in your, like, all the hours between when you leave here and when you get back next week, how do you connect with him? And we've used a house as a metaphor. It was the house that I actually grew up in. Our house had three floors. And uh, on the main floor, which, of course, was the largest part of the house and where we lived almost all the time, uh, life just sort of thrived and things went. We talked about the main floor. And where is God just in our day-to-day -day life, in the things that we do, the things that make up our life, waking and sleeping and working and playing and interacting with our families and, you know, doing all the things that we do, where is Jesus actually in this? And does he care about that part of our life? And so we talked about that. And then last week, we talked about another floor, which is the basement. And the basement is basically where we do things that we know we shouldn't do. And, uh, and here's the reality that we, we just want to get out onto the table, even though we try not to act like we have a basement in church, and we generally bring our best selves to church where we smile and we're dressed well and we really interact well with our spouse or our kids. You know, have any of you had the experience where you're like fighting all the way to church, but then you pull up and all of a sudden it's like the smiles come on and it's like, yeah. All right. Well, you know, here's the reality, though, just to kind of put us in the same place. We all have a basement. We all have things that we don't want to do that we do and things that we should do that we don't do. And sometimes we're not always in the basement. I mean, there's times where we are doing pretty well, but we're all tempted toward the basement. And an interesting thing about the basement is the basement uh, is very appealing to us. There is something inside of us where we like to draw outside the lines a little bit. And we sort of think that there is a thrill or there's, there's something for us in the basement. And so, you know, we start wading into it, and there's a great quote that C.S. Lewis says about sin or the basement. He says, you know, sin offers you more and more and delivers less and less, and finally it promises everything and delivers nothing. And if you've ever been in sort of a basement issue where it's really now gotten a wrap around your heart or it is consuming your life, you'll know that's exactly true. It promised you life, and it's not giving you life at all. In fact, you would probably say it's, it's bringing me death. 
And so what we want to do today is we talked last week about getting into the basement, and I just figured it would be fair this week to talk about getting out. So we're going to get out of the basement today, and uh, we're going to be looking at a book, uh, actually two books, called First and Second Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, turn to First Timothy. It's near the end. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you. Just raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. We'll bring some of this up on the screen. We've got them on your outlines. It's great to bring your Bible so that you can follow along. But let me tell you a little bit, a little bit about this guy, Timothy. Uh, we know actually quite a lot about him. Timothy was converted as a, a young man. Uh, we don't know exactly how old he was, but he was converted along with his grandmother and his mother, and they lived in a place called Lystra, which is sort of modern-day Turkey, and Paul was traveling around, we think, on his first missionary journey, and he meets Timothy and uh, his mom and grandma, and they become Christians, and Timothy, from an early stage, decides he's going to devote himself to following the way, following Jesus. And so he does, and in fact, early on, he starts traveling around with Paul because Paul was a missionary and Paul would go from town to town. We know that Timothy went with him early on in his life. So kind of as Timothy's faith is being formed and as he's growing up and he's becoming, you know, sort of from a young man to a man, he's with Paul a lot. They're on the road a lot. They're talking a lot. They're interacting a lot. We even find out that Timothy eventually starts to become a fellow worker. Paul calls him a fellow worker in spreading the gospel. And I didn't even know this until this week. But Timothy actually became the pastor of several churches, all of which are kind of famous if you know the New Testament because there were letters written to these churches. Uh, churches. But he became the pastor of Philippi, where we get the book of Philippians. He became uh, the pastor later on of Thessalonica, where we get the book of Thessalonians. Good. Um, let's see if I have the last one. He also became the, the guy uh, at Corinth. And so we get the book of Corinthians. Very good. And now, when Paul writes these letters to Timothy, it's near the end of Paul's life, and Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus, where we get the book of Ephesians, right. And so <laughs> Timothy sort of, you know, was really in the center of a lot of things. And one of the things we also recognize about Paul is Paul saw Timothy as the guy that was going to carry on his mantle. It was as if he was passing the baton to Timothy. And we get a lot of that in these two books that we read. Is not just about Timothy at this church of Ephesus, trying to defend the faith because there was a lot of false teaching there and Paul's concerned about that. But he see, you see that Paul is actually talking to Timothy almost as a father would to a son, saying, listen, Timothy, it's not enough just for you to do your job well. I want you to be a great pastor. I want you to protect the church. I want you to do all these great things at Ephesus. But you've got to pay attention to your character. And in fact we get out of this book a lot of counsel that Paul gives to Timothy about staying out of the basement or getting out of the basement. Now, it's sort of sprinkled throughout, almost like a letter would be, right? So Paul wasn't sitting down to give us a systematic theology on how to get out of the basement. What he does is he sprinkles in advice to Timothy as he goes through this writing. And lots of it has to do with either staying out of the basement or getting out of the basement. Now, we don't know anything about Timothy as far as that goes, 
Maybe we can assume that Paul knew some things about Timothy just being around him a lot. But anyway, this is a heavy focus. And here's the two major things, just two major things. We're going to put the message into two parts. There is the part that God plays, and there is the part that you play. And Paul hits both of them, and I want to start with the most important part, which is not the part that we play, but the part that God plays. Because here's the bottom line from Paul's standpoint. You can't get out or stay out of the basement without God's help. He is essential in doing this. And so he's going to start off at the beginning of 1 Timothy and make some very powerful statements about the role that God plays in helping you stay out of the basement or if you've fallen in, helping you get out of the basement. All right, so turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul makes kind of an amazing statement about himself. 1 Timothy 1 verses 15 and 16. Here we go. It's up on the screen. Let's read it together so we're all tracking, okay? It says this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Okay, now there's a lot in that statement, although is there something that's sort of surprising to you about what Paul says in there? What surprises you about that statement? Yeah, the worst of sinners. You picture Paul as the worst of sinners. Doesn't that make you feel a little shaky about your standing? If Paul, the guy that wrote half of the New Testament, that spread the gospel, basically, that was the missionary that launched Christianity, if he goes, well, I'm the worst of sinners, all of a sudden you're like, ooh. Well, if you're the worst, man, I'm one rung below you at least. Now, here's an interesting thing. Okay, so Paul starts off by saying, here's a trustworthy statement. And really what he's saying, basically, he's using a formula that would say, I really need you to pay attention to this statement I'm about to make. In fact, I'm going to use sort of my whole apostolic clout here. This is as true as any statement as you'll ever get. This is not only a true statement, it is a statement that demands that you respond to it. So he begins off this statement by saying, pay attention, pay attention to what I'm about to say here. And then he says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save all of the righteous people, all of the really good people, all of the people that basically could make it on their own and would need no help from God, right? He says that, right? No, what is, he came in to save sinners. So let me just say this, okay? A little radical of a statement. If you don't consider yourself a sinner, you don't need Jesus. Jesus is totally irrelevant to your life if you're not a sinner. This is the most amazing, really, of statements because we think that it's our badness that keeps us away from Jesus, right? We think if we're a crummy person, if we're living in the basement, if we're doing all these shameful things that we're keeping secret, of course, Jesus is holding us at bay. We're holding Jesus at bay. There's no connection here because we are so bad. 
And I won't argue with it. You're right. Badness can create a gap. Absolutely. It's not Jesus' gap toward us. It's our gap toward him. Absolutely. But let me tell you something maybe you never thought about. Your goodness creates a gap. You know why? Because we are prone when we're good to think, I'm really not much of a sinner. I really don't need that much help. Maybe I need a little advice here or there from Jesus. Maybe I need, you know, a sprinkle of church here and there, read the Bible a little bit. If I get just a little bit of these things, I'm pretty good on my own. I pretty much can make it on my own. And here's what Paul says. You're crazy. You're crazy if you think you can make it on your own. You're crazy if you think you're good enough to live the life that Jesus came to give you. And he says, we've got to start at basics, and here's the basics. You're a sinner, and you need to be saved. You're someone that has been separated from God because of your actions and your thoughts and your words, and you can't make yourself good enough to win it all back. You need help. And so Paul very easily says, I have a sin problem. He doesn't say, I was a sinner. He says, I am a sinner. This isn't like in the past, like how we share our testimonies, where it's like, let me tell you how crummy I was, and then I became a Christian, and now, woo, am I awesome. Paul would never say that. He'd say, you know what, I was kind of crummy before, and I've still got my crumminess factor now. I've still got sin issues now. I've still got a basement that I've got to deal with. And so Paul has no problem saying that. And in fact, he'd say, unless you can say the word, I am a sinner, you really, Jesus is irrelevant. He's not going to help you. His job wasn't just to come and give you a little advice here and there. It is to save sinners. Now, there is this incredible picture that is given then about what happens when you've spent a lot of time in the basement. All right? And I'll, I, you guys aren't like me, but I'll tell you this about myself. There are times when I go into the basement that I know I'm going into the basement. I'm choosing to go into the basement. I know what God says about this. I know how he feels. I even can project as to the guilt that I'm going to have down the line. And, you know, you guys aren't dealing with this issue, but I still choose to go. I still say, you know what, the thrill to me is worth it. You know, somehow I think I'm going to get something that I usually don't get, but I'm going down there. I'm going in. So, how does God deal with that, okay? I'm not talking about the slip-up, where all of a sudden you're just sort of hanging out, and all of a sudden you found yourself in the basement, and you didn't mean to, and you promised you'd never go in again, and you came out of the basement, everything's good. Okay, there's that kind. But what about those of us that go in a lot, or the same issue drags us down? And we've been fighting this issue for months, maybe for years. How does God feel about that? When does the quota run out? When does he finally say, hey, you know, I gave you a break the first thousand times. Thousand and one is too far. Can't do it anymore. And so these amazing words are written. He says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his 
Let's say it together. His immense patience. His immense patience. This spoken as a true sinner. Paul understands, oh my gosh, you have got to be patient with me because I've blown it enough that anybody that didn't have patience would finally roll their eyes, shake their head, and walk away. And there's this amazing statement that God has immense patience with me and immense patience with you. This is such an important characteristic about God because so often what we know about God is that he's righteous and he judges and he's just and he's pure. And we get this picture of God in heaven with a gavel and he's going to pound you on the head if you get it wrong too many times. And yet that is not the picture that Paul paints here. He says there is immense patience. There was a woman who had a son and uh, she, uh, she became a Christian as an adult and so she started praying for her son, who now was a young man. He was a very smart guy, went to the university, was just really brilliant, and in fact became sort of a leading uh, philosopher of the day. Uh, but his life was a mess. And he, if you could do something in the basement, he did it in the basement. In fact, he had actually a reputation as being the guy that would push it further than anyone else and do the things that nobody else would do. And so his mother, Monica, started praying for him and just prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him. And years and years and years and years went by and she was just steadfast praying. Her patience was amazing. And then through a series of circumstances, years into it, this guy became a Christian. And uh, he actually became quite a famous Christian a guy named Augustine. And Augustine is responsible for a lot of the theology that we believe about Jesus to this day. Uh, a lot of what you think about God comes from Augustine, brilliant philosopher. And he would be the first to say, it was my mother and her immense patience that God used to save me. And here's what you must hear. God not only is patient with you, but that if you've been saved by Jesus, God's desire for you is ultimately going to win. And your desire for you. He isn't just patient. He outweights your sin in such a way that eventually you'll be won over. It's a guarantee. He says it isn't even due to your faithfulness. God says it's due to my faithfulness. I am so faithful to you that even though you still clown around in the basement, sometimes you fall in, you don't want to, sometimes you go in with fish shaking at God, God says it's okay. The day is coming and I'm going to win and you're going to be pure and you're going to be righteous. Paul calls it the hope of glory. You will be glory. So it's the great news. It is the great news. And finally says, and you get eternal life through this. And again, in Paul's terminology, eternal life isn't just the life that starts when we die or the life that goes on forever and ever. The idea is it's a full, abundant life that's offered to you now and goes on forever. And he says, right now that life is available. Right now that life is available. 
So that's the part that God plays. God plays a huge part. The part that God plays means you're going to win. In the end, you will stay out of the basement. You're going to be a basement-free person. Before that time, you're going to struggle, and I'm going to struggle, and we're going to struggle together. So here's the question. What is the part that you do? If that's the part that God does, is there anything you can do to impact getting in to the basement or staying out of the basement, uh, and once you're in, how to climb out? How do you do those things? And I want to give you four things that Paul tells Timothy. We're going to sort of rattle through them pretty quickly. We hit them a little bit last week, and I want to go through them quickly. But these are the things that if you're interested in participating, partnering with God to keep you out of the basement, here's the parts that you're going to do, okay? So here's the first one. Uh, And you're going to talk about these in your life groups. If you're in a life group and you're doing this stuff, you're going to talk about these in your life groups this week about how do you do these things? How do you actually practice these things? Okay, so here's the first thing. Guard what God has given you. Guard what God has given you. Uh, What Paul talks to Timothy about is that he's on mission in Ephesus to guard the gospel against these false teachers. But he says a really interesting thing to Timothy. If you're going to guard this stuff, there's something really important you need to understand. This is, you're not going to guard it just by really clever arguments or you know, being able to present the gospel in such a great way or even keeping the false teachers out of your church. Here's the way that he says you guard it the best. He says in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, uh, he says, What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching. And then he uses these words, With faith and love in Christ Jesus. And if you are... If you got your own Bible or your outline, that's fine. Circle faith and love. And then he says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, whenever you see the words faith and love, and those two words are put together a lot in the books of Timothy, faith and love always is just code for practical Christianity, okay? Faith and love is Paul's way of saying it's not enough that you just have good theology. It's not good enough that you just think the right thoughts or believe the right things. Faith and love means you're going to actually practice the great commandment, which is to love. Yep, sorry, I've been talking so much you guys are passive now. All right, but you're right about that. The The first of the great commandments is to love. All right, let's say it with a little more passion, and I'll believe that you're tracking with me, okay? The first commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor, right? Okay, so that is the practical implications of following Jesus. And when he says faith, it means you're going to obey. You're actually going to do the things that show love to God and shows love to others. So faith and love. And here's what he says. He says, Timothy, it's not enough for you just to be the smartest kid on the block. It's not enough for you to be able to refute the false teachers with your arguments. You need to demonstrate in your life faith and love. In other words, your life needs to back up what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus giving the abundant life. You've got to live the abundant life. If you're not living the abundant life, it doesn't matter what you're going to say because nobody's going to believe it. And so what Paul would know and what any Jewish person would know is if you are going to live the life You need to guard your heart. You've got to guard your heart. You've got to protect yourself from the things that pull you into the basement. There's a story of a farmer, and uh, he's living on the farm, and they have well water to drink. And uh, he realizes after a while that the water that they're drinking 
doesn't quite taste right. Just a little off. And, uh, but they keep on drinking. It's the only water that they, that they have. And then they realize that after a while, the water doesn't quite smell right. It smells a little funny. And so, but they keep drinking it because there's nothing else to do with it. And uh, so one night, in the middle of the night, he wakes up, and all of a sudden a thought occurs to him. And he grabs his shovel, and he goes out by the well, and he starts to dig. And he eventually finds what he's looking for, which is he had buried a horse near the well. And they were drinking their rotting horse. Yeah, lovely. And he realized that he had just put that horse a little too close to the water source. Solomon says a really interesting thing to us. He says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the wellspring of life. It's the idea that you better guard the source of your well water, because if that well water source gets messed up, you're in big trouble. And he says that's like our heart. Our heart is like the source of our life. If we don't guard our heart and things start leaking into it, we're in big trouble because the issues of life flow from our heart. And I just want to tell you, we in the United States, maybe more than any other culture, are so careless with guarding our hearts. Maybe it's because we're exposed to so much. Maybe it's because we believe that we have the right to experience anything that we want to experience. But here's, here's the truth. It is a fool's game to think that you can experience anything you want to experience and that it's not going to have an impact in your life, that it's not going to actually have an impact in your heart, that it's not going to change the way you think about things or change the way that you relate to people or change your relationship with God. It's just foolish to think that we can live any way we want without guarding our heart and that our heart's going to be just as healthy and strong as it could be. Because that's just not the way it is. We are so easily influenced, so subtly influenced by things. So if you're in a group of people and they gossip all the time, you're going to be prone to gossip. Okay. If you're going to parties all the time and people are carousing all the time, you're going to be prone to carousing. Right? I mean, you're going to be prone toward it. It's going to, at least you're more likely to do it than you would if you were never in that setting. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Timothy, guard your heart. Don't put yourself in a place where you're constantly being sucked into stuff. Maybe at first you go, there's no chance. I'm not interested in that at all. But you're around it all the time. After a while, it's going to start looking good. After a while, it's going to start pulling you in. After a while, it's going to be your new normal because it's what everybody else does. Be careful. Guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. And here's, what, here's, here's kind of the important thing. We so often get caught into what's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. When you're guarding your heart, that's actually not the most important question. Not what's right and wrong. The most important question, as a guy named Andy Stanley taught us years ago in a series that he did, is what is the wise thing to do? So uh, let me give you an example of my own life. Um, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, I think, that uh, the way I handle money is a temptation to me. I tend to get consumed with money. I worry about money. I whack my family over the head concerning issues with money. Uh, they'd all say I don't, but I'm just confessing, coming clean. Is that so big of me, huh? 
Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> you're loving that. All right, so that's a problem. Okay, so here's the deal. Every morning when I get into work, first thing I do is I go on my computer, you know, go onto the internet, and I pull up, first thing I pull up is the stock market to take a look at how the stocks are going because our mutual money market is tied into the stocks. And so I look at that. Then I go to my bank account and I look just what's the latest things that come in. And then I go to Quicken and I, you know, if you do the Quicken thing, you connect everything and all of a sudden you figure out your money. It's the very first thing that I do. Now let me ask you a question. Is there, is there anything wrong with doing that stuff? No, there's nothing wrong with it. Come on, that's not a sin, is it? You guys, are, you're jumping ahead. Okay, you're right. There is. There is for me, right? Whoops, sorry. There is for me. There is for me, because that's not where I need to be thinking. The first thoughts that I have of the day is how the stock market's going, how my money's doing, where somebody in my family spent something that now I'm going to find out about and brood about for the, until I talk to them. Yeah, it is. But you see, the question of right and wrong would never get me to that, because as long as you're going to say that it's wrong, I'm going to say there is nothing wrong with checking the stock market. There's nothing wrong with doing that stuff. But what you would say is, but Kevin, is that the wisest thing you could do? And the answer would be, no, you're not very wise. You're not very wise. And here's the key with setting the guard. The guard always has to do with wisdom. Ask yourself if you're being wise. Don't ask if it's right or wrong. You're going to be able to justify that it's right. Unless it's an out-and-out -out sin, you can justify that there's nothing wrong, that somebody else could do it, that you've seen other people do it, that there's nothing wrong with it. The question is, are you wise? So hanging around with certain people, maybe it would be okay for other people. Maybe it's not okay for you. Maybe going on the Internet late at night is fine for other people, just not a great idea for you. Be wise. Guard your heart. Don't bury the horse by the well. Because eventually, something's going to stink. All right? That's just wisdom. It's just wisdom. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Feed the good dog. Feed the good dog. When I was in youth, one of the first messages I ever heard was by my youth pastor. And he gave this message about two dogs, the, the good dog and the bad dog. And he said, you have these two dogs raging in your heart. And he said, the one you feed is the one that will get strong and survive. And his point was, is you've got all kinds of things that are coming at you all the time. Are you going to feed the good things and run away from the bad things? Or are you going to feed the bad things and push the good things away? Feed the good dog. Feed the dog that gives you life. Feed, do the things that bring life. And Paul says this basically to Timothy. He says these words. He says... Um, where are we here? 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love. There's the faith-love connection again. Endurance and gentleness. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.22, second letter to Timothy, says almost exactly the same thing. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love. We get that connection again. And peace. You can just see the idea. It's the idea you got to run away. Don't feed the bad dog. Pursue the good dog. Run toward the good dog. Do the things that build up the good dog. So here's the question. For you, what is that? 
What is the good dog in your life? What is the stuff that you want to feed yourself that makes you move in the right direction? Because there's plenty of things that come into your life that are going to pull you down the basement stairs. And the idea here, again, is not to sit there and fight against it. It's to flee. Don't stand and fight toe-to-toe with a temptation. Temptation almost always wins. That's why the advice is always flee. Get out of there. Escape. Run away. Because that temptation, the longer it's around your heart, the more it's going to pull you in. The more likely it is to get you. Just flee it. Just turn away. Just run away those things that tempt you. Move toward the things that are good. You know, Nancy Reagan came out with this great phrase, you know, a couple of decades ago, three decades ago. Just say no. And it was about drugs, right? Just say no. You know what they realized after about 10 years? Kids were saying no to drugs, but they hadn't told them what to say yes to. And so they drift into all other kinds of crap. They're like, say no to drugs, but that's not enough. It's not enough just to say no, because you've got to say yes to something. What do you say yes to? What do you pursue that builds health into your life? Let me tell you a couple things for me. Uh, Reading the Bible. You know, if I will read the Bible instead of check the stock market, there is an amazing impact that has in my life. Even if it's for like five minutes, five, ten minutes, just reading the Bible, just getting God's word into my mind has an amazing impact on the rest of my day. It just sets my mind right. It's not magic. It's just that I'm feasting on something that's good, something that's healthy. How do you start your day? Maybe you just put a Bible, you know, next to the John and, you know, just get it done right away. You know, maybe it's while you're eating breakfast. Maybe you have a tape, CD, put it in your car, you listen to it a little bit on the way. You know, don't drive reading your Bible. (laughs) Just meditate on it. Just think about it. I'll tell you the other thing, and this ties into our next point, is for me being with a group of guys or with a guy that I can be really honest with, that's another thing that pushes me in the right direction. And that's another bit of advice that Paul gives to Timothy. He says these words in 2 Timothy 2.22. He says, join forces with a buddy, basically. And he says these words. He says, um, when he was talking about pursuing what's righteous, he says, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, your walk is not an isolated event. It is meant to be done in community with other people, with other people that are kind of going along. Uh, when you were in kindergarten, if your class went somewhere, uh, very often, I'll bet you that your teacher said, okay, grab the hand of somebody, you know, one of your buddies, and don't let go. And the idea is it's way harder for two people to get lost together than one. And so it's like, just grab hands, the buddy system. And the buddy system works for us as we get older, this buddy system. So, uh, To go along with that, James has great advice. He says, therefore, James 5.16, let's read this together actually, okay? It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. All right, now here's basically what James is saying, and it's the same thing that Paul is telling Timothy, is get somebody else in your life that knows what you're dealing with. So let me give you... um, you know, sort of good advice. If you have a secret about the basement, 
that secret will get worse. Secrets get worse. Secrets don't get better. You sort of watch in amazement as you watch some guy who's been a pastor for 50 years and is like nationally renowned as being a godly person and they totally fall apart. What do you think the problem was for that guy? What do you think? He had a secret, right? He didn't all of a sudden, after 50 years of godliness, start, you know, sleeping in the wrong bed or embezzling money. It didn't happen after 50 years. It had gone for a long, long time, and it had started small, and it had gotten worse and worse, and he felt like, I can't tell anyone because I'm supposed to be like God's man. I'm supposed to have it together. What would people think? And so the secret grows and grows. There's more and more pressure. And finally, it explodes. And it's like, oh my gosh, that guy has the worst basement. And he does. He does have the worst basement because it was secret for so long. So what's the key? The key is you've got to open up a window and get some light into that basement, right? You've got to get something into that basement that's going to, uh, you know, reveal the problems that are there. And here's who it is. It's your buddy. It's your buddy. Your buddy is the one that you share this with. And I just want to tell you, I'll, I'll just make a flat statement, and I 100% believe it. If there is not someone that knows about your secret, you're in trouble. Somebody needs to know, besides you and besides God, there needs to be someone with flesh and blood that knows about your secret. And if you have nobody like that in your life, the most important thing I could tell you, really, honestly, about the basement issues today, just one thing, don't even have to write it down. Get a buddy. Find somebody to talk with. If you have to pay a counselor, go and talk to a counselor. You must have somebody that walks with you in your basement. And I'll just tell you, I've had seasons where I have somebody that's like that, and I've had seasons where I don't. And it isn't like this thing where I fall off a cliff. As soon as I don't, whoa, the secret, <laughs> Kevin's about to fall apart. It doesn't go that way. But I will tell you this, I start drifting. I start drifting. That secret starts to get a little bigger, starts to become a little more of a problem. You must have somebody in your life. I'm just... I'm just saying, this is a wisdom thing. This isn't even me. I just think the Holy Spirit would say, hey, get a buddy. You know, somebody that I can work with to help you in this area. Get a buddy. So I really want to encourage you, okay? And here's the bottom line, too. Let me just tell you one thing. Don't get a buddy that is the opposite sex. <laughs> Bad move. You want to screw up your basement, get a buddy that you go into the basement with. Don't get somebody of the opposite sex. Get somebody that you can trust, somebody that would understand you, somebody that could say, you know what, maybe my deal isn't exactly like yours, but I've got a basement too. It's the best thing that can happen. Best thing that can happen. And I'll just tell you, for me in my life, when I've got a buddy, there is amazing power that comes from just having somebody else that walks along with me in that. It's really hard to drag another person down into the basement. It really is. Get a buddy. And here's the final thing that Paul says, and I love this phrase. 
He says to Timothy, fight the good fight. He says, but you, man of God, we read this already, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And then he says, all right, let's say it together. Then he says, fight the good fight. Now this sounds, oh, sorry. You guys are way right and I'm way wrong. Okay, fight the good fight of faith. All right. Now, this sounds like a militaristic term. It actually wasn't. It was, a, it was an athletic term, and it was the idea. Paul was actually a huge sports fan. Uh, he used lots of sports metaphors, and he understood that the best athletes would fight the good fight. They'd fight all the way through to the end. They'd do whatever it took to win. And in fact, last night when I was watching USC and UCLA play, one of the comments, comments that one of the commentators made after the score was sort of ridiculous, he said, UCLA has given up. That is the opposite of fighting the good fight. When you give up and you say, it doesn't make any difference. I'm going to lose anyway. Might as well just fall apart at this point. Let me just tell you, if you're in the basement and your thought is, what difference does it make now? I've been down there so long, I'm just going to give up. That's just part of my life. I'm just whatever. You are not fighting the good fight. Here's the deal with fighting the good fight. It doesn't mean you win every time. It just means you don't give up. It just means you don't throw up your hands and go, well, that's just me. That's just what I got to deal with. I had a guy come into my office a few years ago, and his name was also Timothy. And uh, he was very nervous. He was in our church. He was sang in the choir uh, on the worship team. And uh, he said, I've never told anyone else this. And so I was like, okay. And he goes, and that you're a pastor. I can't believe I'm saying it, but I've got to tell somebody. And I'm like, okay. And he said, I'm gay. And I know that being gay in church is like the worst thing you could admit. For some reason, that sin is a worse sin than any other sin. He said, you know, I'm an adult. I've never acted out on that. But there's not a day I'm not tempted. There's not a day that I don't wonder, why did God make me this way? Or why am I this way? Why do I have to fight this fight? And he said, I just had to tell someone. And I realize you're the pastor of the church. And I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know if you're going to tell me to stop coming to your church now that I've admitted this. And after he had talked for a few minutes, he just sat back and he wanted to hear what I was going to say. And he was really nervous about what I'd say. And so I said, Tim, all you've told me is you have a basement. I actually knew that before you came in. I didn't know what was in your basement. I just knew you had one. All you did is you just told me one of the things that's down there. I could turn this around now, Tim, and tell you something that I got in my basement. I don't have that particular thing in my basement, but I've got stuff that I'm kind of embarrassed about or a little shamed about. Tim, of course you can stay in our church. Every person in our church has a basement. It doesn't matter what's in there. But then I said this to him. I said, there's this phrase that Paul used with Timothy that I just love. He said, Timothy, and it's actually in the context of talking about basement issues. If you go back and read in 1 Timothy, what hits right before this where he says, fight the good fight, he's talking about basement issues. I said, Tim, 
You need to fight the good fight. And you know what? I need to fight the good fight. And I'll tell you what. You are welcome in our church as long as you're fighting the good fight. And that's what we do. We fight the good fight. Don't give up, Tim. Don't just give in to it. Don't just say, well, finally, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm just going to let go. Fight the good fight. That's what we do. We fight the good fight. And here's the great news. In the end, we're going to win. Because God says you're going to win. In the end, fighting the good fight pays off. You win because God guarantees it. And so that's my question for you. Are you fighting the good fight? I know you've got a basement. That's not the issue. I know you'd be ashamed to get up here and talk about it. And you notice I don't talk real openly about the basement. I'm not going to do it in front of 200 people. Are you fighting the good fight? Because if you're fighting the good fight, you're going to guard your heart, right? You're going to put things away from you that tend to pull you in. You're going to move the dead, stinking, rotten horse away from the well. You're going to move it away. You're going to feed the good dog. You're going to feed the good things that are in your life. And you're going to get a buddy. And if you do those things, you're going to be fighting the good fight. And you know what? That's all you can ask. Because here's what Paul says at the end of his life. I love this. He says, I'm already be being poured out like a drink offering. In other words, he says, I'm about to die. And the time for my departure is near. And then he says these great words. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The worst of sinners could say that because he didn't stop. And that's our call. Don't stop. Don't stop. Stand for closing prayer. Listen, here is the key. Here is the key. If you go out of here with some new thoughts in your mind, but you don't do anything with it, then this was kind of a waste of time, right? So pick something. Pick something that for you needs to be done. For you is your next step. Pick something and say, all right, today, that's what I'm going to do. And what I want to do is I want to pause for just a second, give you a chance to reflect on what is it for you today. Just short, like 15 seconds. You're going to have to think fast about it. But just make a commitment before God to say, all right, before this day is over, before this week is over, I'm going to do that. I'm actually going to take the step. Because that's what makes this time worthwhile. That's what makes this actually change your life. All right, so let's pause for 15 seconds. Just reflect, and then I'll close this in a word of prayer. Lord, you just heard a whole bunch of prayers. And in every case, you smiled. You tell us that you'll help us with the basement. And your spirit comes alongside and actually gives us strength and wisdom. And we pray for that this week. Help us to really change. Help us to change because of the work you do in us to open ourselves up to it, to do our part. And I pray that this would be a week where we have some victory, where maybe last week we had some failure. 
Jesus, help us to fight the good fight of faith. We are so grateful for your patience, your immense patience. Thank you. Walk with us as we come out of the basement and as we stay out of the basement. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen.